Amen. Thank you, Amanda. You know, when I first became a Christian, one of the things I became frustrated with pretty quickly was the whole topic of sin and how to overcome sin in my life. And there were different teachers or forms of teaching that I encountered as a young Christian. Uh, for example, there was the path of deliverance that I encountered pretty early on when I met a street preacher as a college student at the University of Texas in Austin, and I would watch him preach at people crossing the street from the campus on a regular basis. And he was pretty loud, pretty gregarious, but I offered to take him one time for a cup of coffee to get his take on things. I had only been a Christian about a year and a half at that point. And so we sat and talked, and he shared with me that he had not sinned in the past seven years. Uh, of course, that was the late 70s. I'm not sure what's happened since then. But at that point, he had not sinned. In fact, he was very specific that he had not had lust in his heart towards a woman during that seven-year period of time. That was not my experience as a 19-year-old college student. And, and so I didn't know what to make of that. And then I encountered other believers who from time to time said, that deliverance is how God deals with sin. He delivers you from temptation or delivers you from that sin problem. And, and yet, later I read passages like 1 John 1, 8 that says, if we say that we are without, without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so I knew that wasn't the answer. So that was the path of deliverance. And then I encountered the path of denial. It's the best way to describe it. This was, this was very close to use some of the language of the scripture where it said that that you are dead to sin, and that language is used in the scripture, but not in this sense. They would teach that you are dead to sin, and what that means is the way they would illustrate it, is that you are, when you are right with God and walking with him appropriately, that you are a dead man in relationship to sin. It, you are like a person who is physically dead, leaned against the wall, and you can walk all kinds of temptation in front of that dead man, and he will not respond to the temptation. Well, that wasn't my experience either. And, uh, and in fact, I don't believe that's our experience as believers when it comes to overcoming sin. In Hebrews 4.15, it says Jesus himself was tempted in all points like us, yet without sin. So Jesus experienced that pull. He experienced that temptation. The path of denial was just that. It was denial. And then there was the path of do nothing. Uh, that's, that's my label for it. Uh, the do-nothing approach was probably the thing that, that put me over the edge and really caused me to search and study and ask a lot of people questions to get an answer to how to overcome sin. The do-nothing approach was something like this. It said that if you embrace God's truth, God's word, and you meditated on it sufficiently, that the very act of meditation would enable you to sit back, God would move into the front seat, he'd take over the controls of your life, and you would fly and sail over sin. Well, that wasn't my experience either. And then the last one is probably the saddest of all, and that's the path of despair. That happens to that man or woman who has tried and tried and tried to overcome a particular sin with no favorable result, and they are so discouraged that they conclude usually one of two things, that I can't change, and uh, if I'm ever going to change, it'll be when I'm dead. And so they can actually be suicidal or despair in the sense that I give up, I quit, I'm going to just live with this, or this is just who I am or the way that I am, the path of despair. When we come to the letter of Colossians, which we've been studying for the last several weeks, we find in the first two chapters the Apostle Paul telling us all that God has done for us in Christ. 
And then when we come to chapter 3, he begins to talk about not God's part in salvation, but now your part. Because of what God has done, how do you act? How do you respond to what he has done? And so in those opening passages, opening verses, we've seen several things. We've seen how we're to seek those things which are above, how we're to pursue Christ in our passion, in our, in our heart. We taught, saw last week how you and I are to starve the sin monster or kill the sin monster by cutting off those things that feed sinful desire. But then we come to this verse 8 of Colossians 3, and, um, and he says to put off your sin habits. And this is really the third part of the process that is ours. Colossians chapter 3, verse 8, put off your sin habits. Here's what he says, but now you yourselves are to put off all these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. And then he says, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man uh, with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. And so last week he said, here's what you do with sinful desire. He says, starve it, put it to death. But this week he's talking about something else, something that we don't put to death, something instead that we put off. How do we put off sin habits? He's shifting gears on us. He was talking about desires, now he's talking about habits. How do you do it? Well, the first thing we need to do is get serious about Christ-likeness. If I'm going to deal with sin habits, I've got to be serious about Christ-likeness. Look at verse 8. But now you yourselves are to put off all these. What is the real path to victory? Well, he is saying here that there are, there's a journey to becoming like Christ that you and I should be on. And there's four things you need to know about this journey. First of all, God's plan. God's plan is to remake you into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Not to leave you as you are, not just to take you to heaven, but to remake you into the image of Jesus Christ. In Romans 8, 29, he says very clearly that his plan, his eternal purpose, is to conform you to the image of his Son. So that's his plan. Now what's his part in that plan? Here's God's part, to indwell you. He doesn't just say go and change on your own. He, he is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Through his Holy Spirit, he, wants, he comes to live inside the Christian. And he is the presence of Jesus Christ, and he is the very power of Jesus Christ to enable you to change and put off sin habits. But there's a problem, and here's our problem. Sin habits remain. Sin habits remain. The sin monster could be starving. We could have it caged, and I'll explain this in a moment. We could have that somewhat under control, but I've still got this body of sin habits that are going to plague me, that I've got to deal with. And so what is our part? This is what these verses are about. Our part is to put off sin habits and put on new godly habits. God will not do that for you. He says, but you yourselves, but now you yourselves are to put off all these. 
He doesn't say God's going to do that for you. He says you have to deal with the sin habit. You have to address it. Now, let's illustrate this. Um, I brought with me today some various habits that we might have. He talks about putting off and putting on. And so in putting off and putting on, it sounds like clothes. And you'd be right. It kind of sounds like that. And um, I want you to think about for a moment what your life is like before Christ. Uh, look at this next slide. Let's say you have a sin problem. Say your habit, you have the problem of lying. And before Christ, sinful desire is in charge. Sinful desire is king. The Apostle Paul says sin is your master without Christ. And sinful desire is free and loose inside of you at that point. And what sinful desire does is, is through those desires, you act on them. And if you act on it once and twice and three and four and five times, it's now moved from a desire to a habit. And it becomes ingrained. It becomes automatic. It becomes your first impulse. It becomes your first response to a given situation because of that sinful desire, you have formed a sin habit. Now, if God left me that way, I'd have no hope. Sin would rule, and I could clean up on the outside, but sinful desire would still be churning, still be in charge, and I'd still have those thoughts and those things running through my mind. So sinful desire gives rise to sin habits. And then Christ comes. Now, when Christ comes, everything changes. Notice that the Holy Spirit indwells the new believer. The Holy Spirit is king. He is Lord of lords, king of kings. He is the spirit of Jesus Christ. And he is now creating in you new desires. You have new wants, new longings, new interests. And they are present inside the heart of every believer. And just like sinful desire, you can feed it or starve it. You can feed on God's word. Jesus said uh, that the word of God was, was life said, man does not live by bread alone, quoting from Deuteronomy, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It is life to you. And so you can feed your relationship with God through the Scripture, and it will give rise to new desires. And those are the desires of Christ. He works in you the will and the do, or the desire, his good pleasure. All right. Now notice that with this set of desires, it would be wonderful if that was all there was to the story. God saves you, immediately removes all sinful desire, gives you all of these Christ-like desires, and that was your new story. But that's not our experience, is it? It's not. Because notice what's happened to sinful desire. Sinful desire has been caged. It's no longer king. It's no longer master. And so you shouldn't act like it. It can still prompt you. If, uh, it, can still, it can still call out to you. But it's not your master anymore unless you let it. And, and it can still be at work. But you're not supposed to let it rule anymore. In Romans 6, the Apostle Paul says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lusts or the desires thereof. Sorry about the King James. It was a long time ago. I memorized that one. Okay, He says, Don't let, it, don't let sin reign. Don't let it be king. It has desires. Don't let it be in charge. Now, let's, let's think of a couple scenarios here. Let's say you become a Christian when you're 45. 
and you haven't been a Christian for 45 years, and now you're a Christian. And the Holy Spirit lives in you, and this is your picture. This is what's happening to you. And let's say your problem was the habit of lying. And you've had this problem for 43 years of your 45 years. You started young. And suddenly, sinful desire is caged, and, and you know with your mind it's not the king anymore, but you have this habit. And so your first response when put under pressure, your first response to save face, your first response to make sure everybody thinks of you really good or whatever the case is, is to lie. It's your first impulse. you got to deal with the habit. And that's what he's saying. you gotta, you got to put off that habit of lying. Now let's say you're six years old and you come to know Christ. And this is your picture. And the Holy Spirit's inside you as a six-year-old. And then you grow up. You're 15, you're 20, you're 25. And you've been a Christian since you were six. And, and you've got a habit of lying. You say, well, how could that happen? I didn't lie for 43 years. I don't, I don't have this, this old sin problem. Where did the habit of lying come from? Notice that sinful desire is inside the heart of a six-year-old. Even when they become a Christian, sinful desire is present and it's caged. But if you as a Christian, even as a young Christian, are not growing in Christ, yielding to the Holy Spirit, learning what pleases God, responding to these new desires inside of you, if you don't do that, if you do nothing, sinful desire is going to fill your mind and your heart. And that sinful desire can cause you to form habits that are sinful even as a Christian. And you can develop all kinds of new sin habits as a Christian. It's all a matter of who's in charge and who you're listening to. The Apostle Paul, recognizing this issue, said this in Galatians 5.16. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. You'll feel it, but you won't fulfill it if you walk in the Spirit. Now, this is really a two-part message. Because we're talking today about how to put off old sin habits, but you really need the rest of the message, and that's next week. So the real, the real thing that has to happen is not only do you put off something, you also need to be putting on something. So what does he mean by putting off these sins? Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, and so forth. What does he mean by that? Well, I just so happen to have a lying habit here. And let's say I've, I'm a Christian, I, I am, and... Um, and I've got this habit of lying. What is he saying to me as a believer? He's saying, my, my relationship with God has changed. My relationship to sin has changed. My old man was crucified with Christ. That doesn't mean I'm not responsive to sin anymore. It does mean that sin is no longer my master. And my relationship, my old relationship, that old scheme is dead. It's not the same anymore. So what does he say? He says, put off. Anger, wrath, malice, and so forth. These sin habits. Now, how do you put off? This word put off has several connotations. The basic idea is separation. So one concept of putting something off is to create distance between you and the habit. Now, one of the ways you do that is you create new habits. You work on new godly habits. We'll talk about that next week. But you create distance between you and the sin habit. Another way that you do that is to discard it. It has the idea of discarding, as if it's worthless, as if it's trash. And so you discard it. You get rid of it. But then the last sense of it is to destroy it. 
to put off in the sense of destroying something. Now, first service, I couldn't do this, but I, I prepped this a little more for this service, okay? There's a violent sense caught up in this word of putting off. There's violence in here, and the violence is, is just to not just put it off, you know, throw it away, create distance, but it's to tear it off, ugh, ugh, whatever. That was better than first time, okay? To destroy it. And so he really believes that it's possible for you. You may feel the impulse of the old sinful desire, but you don't have to act on it. And in fact, he says you can create distance, you can discard it, you can destroy it to such an extent that it is not your habit anymore. And that begins as you and I are serious about being like Jesus and becoming Christ-like. But there's a second thing to do to put off a sin habit. Secondly, begin with the way you love other Christians. Begin with the way that you love other Christians. This is surprising and took me by surprise. This is the next thing he says to do. Again, look at verse 8. But now you yourselves are to put off all these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. And then he says, do not lie to one another. Now skip to verse 11. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Quickly, these sin habits that he's describing, anger, refers to the internal, brooding, uh, steeping, simmering that goes on inside of a person who's full of resentment, anger. Then he talks about the word wrath. Wrath is what comes out. That's the external activity. It's the expression. Literally, it talks about a hot breath or a violent breath, and uh, it describes wrath. Malice is the desire to harm somebody. It's that kind of vicious attack. Uh, not necessarily physically. It can just be verbal or mental, but you've got malice towards someone. He, then he uses the word blasphemy. Did you know you could blaspheme someone? The, the basic word that's underlying this word blasphemy is not about what you say about God. It's what you say about other people to defame them, to devalue them, to ruin or damage their reputation by your words. Filthy language out of your mouth sounds like referring to cussing or profanity. And it can. It means literally low speech, but it's speech that's abusive. It's aimed at somebody. You so-and-so kind of speech. And he talks about filthy language out of your mouth in that sense. And then he says, do not lie. This is the kicker. Do not lie to one another. And suddenly, all of these habits, you realize he's, they're, they're the first thing he wants you to address. If you're going to go to work on a sin habit in your life, the first thing he wants you to work on are your relationships to other people, but more specifically, your relationships with other Christians. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language, lying in church. That's what he's saying. He's saying, you want to start somewhere to display the character of Christ? Put off this stuff. Start here. And you know, my own experience, when I first became a believer, and I began to share Christ with my friends, I was pretty hard about it. And uh, they were all going to hell, and I thought the way to evangelize, tell good people good news, is tell them they're going to hell. That's not really good news. And I went back after a couple months and I apologized and restored those relationships and they forgave me and so forth. And I saw numbers of them over the years come to Christ. 
and did their weddings and that sort of thing. But it was about relationships. That was my first area of major conviction. And then about four or five years later, I finished college and I'm serving as a home missionary in Southern California. And I'm praying one day and God convicts me about my attitude towards my dad. And as a high schooler, I would probably best characterize what I felt to my dad as hate. And I discovered as a believer that I had a habit of anger, wrath, malice, so forth, directed at my dad. And so I I called him up. We made a Christmas trip home. I took him to lunch, and I sat across the table from him, and I told him I loved him. You say, well, did you feel love in your heart? And I said, no, but I did what love would do, and eventually God gave me a love for my dad. But what was he doing? He was dealing with relational sin habits. Where is he going to start with you? He's going to start with your relational sin habits. You know that that can kill a church. It can destroy a church. It can destroy the work of God in Wynn, Arkansas. Traveling the state for 10 years before I became your pastor, I saw church after church after church destroyed because of people who had sin habits of anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, and so forth in church. And Christ may or may not dwell in people who act like that. I cannot be the judge. But a Christian in whom Christ dwells can do this, or Paul would not have said, put this stuff away. And so we have an opportunity to be the kind of church that models the character of Christ in our relationships. There are some insights here to healing poor relationships in any church. First, overcoming differences results from being Christ-centered instead of self-centered. That last phrase in verse 11, he's talking about these things going on in the church in Colossae. And then he says, he says there's, there's no difference. There's no Jew. There's no Greek. There's no barbarian. There's Scythian. Social status, slave-free. doesn't matter. Why? Because Christ is all. He's all that matters. And I may disagree with you, you may disagree with me, or you may disagree with each other. But when we take the focus off of ourselves and puts our focus on Christ, we have the chance of overcoming differences. A second observation. Recognize Jesus in every believer. He says Christ is all and in all. You know, hear me please, we are not very good about this as Baptists. It is perfectly okay to disagree with another Christian. Did you hear me say that? It's perfectly okay to disagree with another Christian. It is not okay to start resurrecting the sin habits of anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, and so forth. And so how can I do that? Well, Paul's saying, look, look at that person. Christ is all and in all. Recognize Jesus in that person. Your disagreement is not your priority. Your disagreement is secondary. The most important thing about your relationship with that person is the fact that Jesus lives in you and Jesus lives in them, and I need to learn to recognize Christ in them. Because when I'm angry at that person, I'm angry at Jesus. When I'm malicious towards that person, I'm attacking someone in whom Jesus dwells. A third observation, attracting unbelievers is linked to your love for believers. 
if nothing else motivates you to pursue peace in a church or with other Christians, it should be this. Nothing will destroy the witness of Wind Baptist Church or any church faster than when Christians do not love each other. The Lord Jesus put it this way in John 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Three times he says it in those verses. There's something in a world that's gone mad, in a world where there's no such thing as civil disagreement, in a country where people fight and attack and do all of these things to each other, not just privately, but publicly on national TV, it is intoxicating to a non-Christian to walk into a church and sense people who are passionate lovers of people. And so when he is going to change you into the likeness of Jesus, the first thing he does is cause you to think about your relationships with other people, especially Believers. Thirdly, confront your default patterns of conduct. Confront your default patterns of conduct. You know what default is. That's something that the automatic setting on your computer, it's the automatic thing that happens. If you do nothing else, that's the setting that you get. He says in verse 9, Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. See, the old man, the old relationship to sin is gone. Sin is not master. But all those habits are there, and he can call through the cages. Sinful desire can call through and say, lie to him again. Lie to him. Lie to him. And you can hear that. Because that used to be your master, you can say, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lie again. And what he says, you've put off the old man with his deeds, with his habits. Confront it. Fight it. In my first pastorate some 25-plus years ago, I had served as a staff member to church, and I'd been a church planter in Southern California, but this was my first time to talk to a search committee about becoming a senior pastor. And we had a great, delightful conversation. I love those people to this day. But in the course of that conversation, I brought up one of the very important topics to me at that moment in time. It was 25 years ago, I had made a decision that I would never serve in a church that barred people of other races from fellowship in that church. And so I asked him, I said, I said, I want you to think for a second. If I'm out in the community and I'm just meeting people, getting to know people, and I invite someone to church, and I share Christ with someone, and, it, and he's a black man, and that black man receives Christ in the street or on his doorstep, and he receives Christ, and then he, he, he invites his wife, and he invites his kids and friends, just like new believers do, and he wants to bring them all to church, would they be welcome here? And I watched the committee, and there was shock on their faces that I even asked the question. And half the committee answered the question by nodding their hands, yes. The other half of the committee shook their heads, no. And I caught my breath for a moment, so I didn't go into any bad habits. And I said, would you please explain to me your, your response? And they all looked down. They couldn't look me in the eye. And finally, one of the older men looked up and he said, this is exactly what he said. I wrote it down. He said, Brother Don, I shook my head no, but the truth is we'd have to. The church is for every one of God's people. 
they would be welcome here. I said, good enough. But what happened there, and as we talked about it, I got them to explain, and they said, you know, we were raised this way. My grandfather was racist. My father was racist in his mindset, his attitude. And so we were raised that way. And he said, that's just where we go. You know what he was describing? He was describing a sin habit of mind and heart. Just automatically, default, first impulse reaction is no. But it's wrong. And you and I have to confront that. How do we do that? Three things, quickly. Ask God to surface your sin habits. Ask God to bring it to your mind. Ask God to show you what they are. In Psalm 139, verse 23, the psalmist prays this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, and see if there is any wicked way in me. Ask God to show you. And if you're not hearing what you want to hear from God, ask your spouse. Ask your child. Ask your parent. Ask your best friend. They'll surface your sin habits for you. And God will show you. Secondly, spend time alone with God in his word in order to increase your sensitivity to sinful impulses. The more you read the scripture, the more you become familiar with the character of God, the life of Jesus Christ, and his purity, and his holiness, his majesty, his wonder, his beauty, begins to settle into your mind and heart. As you become aware that God is speaking to you through his word, as you become aware of God with you and in you, all of life becomes sacred space. At that point in time, you will become more and more and more sensitive to sin. In Proverbs 8, verse 13, he says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The more you're conscious of who he is and his power and his majesty, his beauty and wonder, the more you are, you're going to hate evil. Thirdly, yield to him as he seeks to clean the temple of your life. As he brings those things to mind, don't just say, okay, I have an anger problem. No. Join with Jesus Christ in putting off that sin habit. He wants to clean it out. It's not okay, friend, that you have a bad temper. Uh, those of you who are closest to me, uh, you have seen me get angry. But you haven't seen me get angry like I did 30 years ago. When I grew up, we could dismantle you with words, strip you bare, crush you, Push every button you had. And that's my default button, default impulse. And I found as I got older and he began to deal with me in that, in that area of my own life, I needed to put off that sin habit of anger. And typically now, the more angry you are at me, the easier you make it for me. <laughs> the more angry that you are, Usually, the default mode now is to bring it down. And those of you around me, you've heard me talk about this. The first goal in a situation when people are angry is to bring the thermostat down. When you're angry, you can't even think straight. So your first goal 
is to deal with the sin habit, bring the temperature down, and then let's go find a godly habit to replace it with. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Typically, we talk about fitness and diet, but I'm talking about habits today. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? A temple is a place for deity to commune with humanity. That's what God wants to do inside of you. And he wants to use you to be a conduit for the presence of God with every person that you meet, every person that you encounter. And in order to attain that purpose, he wants to clean out of your life everything that is not like Christ and replace it with new habits that represent and reflect Christ. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 12, you can see what Jesus wants to do in a temple that is dirty. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, a place where people can commune with God, but you have made it a den of thieves. And inside of every believer, you've got a den of thieves. Sinful desires, sin habits that have got to be cleaned out. And then finally, number four, grow in your knowledge of the habits of Jesus. He is the template. He is the model. He is the mold that God wants to transform you into. It is his life that God wants to release through you. In verse 10, he says, And it put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. And so God, through things that he's putting in your mind and your heart, is transforming you into the likeness of Christ. To react to things the way Jesus would if he were here in physical form. Now some of you have been riveted to this entire message. Because you've got something that you're dealing with. I'm going to give you homework if you want it. Pick one of the Gospels this week. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, doesn't matter. Pick one of the four Gospels and read that Gospel and ask three questions. Okay? What did he do? You're watching Jesus. What did he do? Second question. What did he say to do? Now listen to me, in case you think this is not important, the essence of the Great Commission is to make disciples, but one of the things he said that we often overlook is when he said, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So when you read about Jesus, what did he do? What did he say to do? And the third question is, is what is he saying to me? If you'll take one of those Gospels this week with those three questions, and read it, you will begin to see the habits of Jesus Christ, the first impulses, the first reactions of Christ to people. It's a starting point. And then next week, we'll see what putting on means. All right? About a month ago, there was a man named Doug Nelson. lives in Jefferson County, Texas. It's actually Cheek, Texas, but that sounded kind of odd to say out loud. It's a little town called Cheek in Jefferson County, Texas. 
was laying in bed, hadn't gotten out of bed yet on Saturday morning, and his wife walks into their bedroom with a World War II hand grenade. Really happened. Her dad, World War II veteran, had passed away. She had a box of his belongings she had never cleaned out. She was going through his box of belongings and found this grenade, a live grenade in the box. She brought it in the bedroom. They called 911. I don't know if he called it for both of them or in defense of himself. I don't know. They came, disarmed the grenade. They, they blew it up. They disarmed it. They dealt with the grenade. But do you know that if you don't take this matter of sin habits seriously, that it is like passing a grenade down as a legacy to your children and grandchildren? That if you don't take this business of sin habits seriously, you are leaving relational shrapnel in the people around you and the generations to come. It is vital that you and I put off sin habits. You say, well, Don, I've tried. I've tried to change. Don't know how. Don't know how I can do anything different than what I've done. Listen, you can do everything God says you can do. And he says that you can change. He says that you can put off old sin habits. It begins not because of your efforts, but because of the presence of Jesus Christ who comes to live inside a person and changes them. That begins when you and I put our trust in Christ and his work for us on the cross. And on the cross where he died, he paid the penalty of sin, your sins, the punishment your sins deserve. He paid it. He also dealt with the power of sin at the cross. And he broke the power of sin so that when he comes to live inside the person who trusts him, sin is no longer the master and you have a new way to live. Have you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior? In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. In a Baptist church, our way of responding to what God has said is during this period of time. For some of you, it may mean singing. Others, you may just need to bow your head and just talk to the Lord about what he's saying to your heart right now. You may need to come and pray, and we, we use these steps as a kind of altar, and we intercede for others and for ourselves when we have a burden or a need. You can come and pray at the altar. There'll be pastors standing at the end of each aisle, and they're here to talk with you. If you need to trust Christ, they'll share Scripture with you. You can read it for yourself, what God has said about how he saves a person, you don't have to take our word for it. And they'll lead you through a process where you can read those passages and you can trust Christ today and receive the new life that he offers. As God has spoken to you, how will you respond?